Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sandra Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on from where you're listening in. Jim, good morning, man. Good morning to you, at least. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for showing (laughs) up again. Thanks for still being here. Of course. Thank you, audience, for being here once again. I'm not visible today. I don't know what's going on. It's a it's a weird day in that sense. My camera's not working. My dog is chewing my house. Like he started eating the borders of the floor. I don't know what's going on. How are you, man? It's just a Friday. It's a Friday. The Gremlins, right? It's it, it's the universe giving you a sign that it's time for a weekend. Yeah, maybe I should just stop working for today. I think that's a that's a good good Could- universal. Uh, advice yeah you know i had a the universe gave me some advice last night i was wrapping up my day i was in my last meeting and a massive storm blew through that i was not expecting lost power like four times in 10 minutes and then just went off and stayed off and um so we had to go out to eat for dinner because couldn't cook anything everything was was frozen and cold and all that um Saw a bunch of downed trees. Power company was out. So we were out of power for about three hours. And at first I was frustrated. Then I'm like, you know what? I need a nap anyway. Let's just <laughs> relax, do some some low-tech stuff. And um, after dinner, came back and everything was was back to normal. So it was good. A little bit of a forced R&R. Well, that, yeah, exactly. That's good. That's, like that's sound advice, right? Just sit things out. This too shall pass. Yeah, I remember my doctor told me a couple of years ago when I was recovering from something. He's like, "Listen to your body; it's giving you signals. It's telling you when you need to to rest. It's telling when you when you need to sit down. It's telling you a lot of things. You've got to pay attention to it." Yeah. So maybe that's what's going on with your dog and and my weather. But then, yeah, the weather over here is still is, is just as strange. Like the other day, we had a massive storm. Was the the heaviest summer storm we had in years. Uh, that's like two or three days ago. Uh, lots of rain, trees snapped like they were twigs, and now it's it's almost a hundred degrees again. Yeah, yeah. I was on a call with uh, with a company in Amsterdam that day, and they were telling me about it. They had some people that were out because of it, and I googled it. It looked big, and they did joke that they said, you know, for us, it was the storm of the year and they said in the u.s though it was probably just no big deal and you know i i get it and that could be true um it's it's interesting what different people or different areas respond to like when i lived in the south for a year um what i would call a light sprinkle or a little bit of rain would be torrential to them and they would be like well i guess we're not leaving the house tonight i'm like what are you what are you talking about it's barely raining and i just couldn't even imagine how they would deal with some of the rainstorms that we would have in the midwest or even in like the pacific northwest or other parts of the u.s so it's just interesting where uh how different areas have different kind of baselines of how they react to things yeah that but it's it's not just that it's also the change that we see ourselves over here because we're this is not 
how it used to be. Like, it's not usual for us to have these kind of storms. Also, we had a mini tornado the other day and that was throwing caravans upside down. Uh, also, to pull, mm. pull trees from the ground. We don't have tornadoes. Tornadoes are your thing, U.S., not ours. <laughs> Keep them over there. Yeah, that's interesting, and we don't want them either, but they're just a fact of life. Exactly. And still, the U.S. chooses willingly to build houses in, in Hurricane Alley. Still a little bit mind-moggling at times, but there you go. Yeah. Yeah, there's expensive real estate in some areas of the coast that are very prone for for hurricanes, and you just roll the dice, you, you put the best laid foundation and plans you can, and... That's what insurance is for, I guess. Fucking pray. Yep. Anyway, earlier this week, you sent me a very interesting question that you got from a client. Tell me about it. Yes. So the 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 crux of the question is, uh, this member of our audience and member of our Discord channel was saying, basically, I work in an environment where it is impossible for the teams to get to done in a two week uh, or whatever their sprint length is because of organizational constraints. There's just so many steps that the work has to go through that, you know, from maybe an infosec review and an architectural this and then a sign off here and a sign off there. Uh, And what that has led to is the teams breaking things down into so many small tasks that, connecting all those small pieces of work in the team to the bigger thing that can actually get released and maybe add value is extremely difficult. And the the open question to me, which I'm now making your problem is what do you do in that scenario? A, have you seen it? And B, what do you do in that scenario? Yeah. uh, I've been in such a scenario with the, the, the most extreme thing that I've ever seen was a company called ASML over here in the Netherlands. They make Mm. lithography machines. So they make star Wars level technology that prints, that's able to print silicon discs. Like they would use it. The machine itself builds computer chips, right? So, 95% 95% of the computer chips in your phone, your laptop, etc., are made by machines from ASML. Like they own the market. And they are able to do this at 15 nanometer, nanometer thickness. So almost atom level. They have three machines that they build with 30,000 people. Now you imagine that these machines mm. need to be integrate, integrated as well. They need to be tested. And therefore there are a lot of processes. These are machines that cost half a billion dollars or more. So they need to be tested very rigorously, very vigorously and continuously. Now, the issue that they had was there are so many processes that they had to take into account also because they have like restrictions with China uh, and other countries that they cannot deliver to. There are a million processes that they need to take into account. That becomes very tough. Like we cannot deliver every two weeks. We need to. If if you would have to work with a test bench, you would have to book a test bench and then slot for that test bench half a year up front. That's the most ex- extreme scenario that I've seen. That company does not need or does not feel the pressure or the sense of urgency to actually change the process because they are the market. If a competitor arises, they buy it. There is. N- Nearly impossible to change that. Mm. On the other side of the spectrum, 
in the case of this this specific scenario, um, there you have a couple of options. So either we can do nothing about it and complain, we can start flailing around on the floor, or we slowly start progressing where we can change these processes. Uh, one of them is just ask for forgiveness rather than permission. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to push the produ uh, production even though we don't have the permission. And we just go. Mm -hmm. And we'll see what happens. And then we'll validate. And then if, if it's successful, which I've seen in the, it happened in the past quite a bit. Like we've deployed the production. Uh, we fixed a ton of bugs. And we did not use any of the processes. We bypassed it. But we've been able to speed up delivery by X percent. And then push this back. And this is our business case. Then you can say, well, maybe we got to change the process because apparently we can do a lot better, but we are being hampered by the process. So the process is rather is becoming the impediment itself rather than helping us. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Wow. There's a lot of interesting things in there. Like the, the, the fact that they own the market and therefore that is leading to them, not maybe thinking about the process and improvement and all that. I think that that's a, it's a big topic in of itself. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I haven't dealt with with that type of a, a industry of that much of a market leader with a physical, tangible product that was so core to the business. Um, so, I, yeah, that that sounds difficult. Um, I will, I will, let me tell you my scenario and then maybe we can compare the two and see, and I'm curious to hear what you did, if anything, and, and I'll tell you what I did and it was only moderately successful. But um, when, when our audience member asked me this question, my brain immediately went to a big bank that I worked at for a number of years. And there was a couple of things at play. One is banking in the U.S. and banking everywhere is highly regulated, right? They're very risk averse, very slow to move. They're monolithic elephants that are just lumbering through what we might call an agile SDLC. And one big problem was the company had a 37-item definition of done. Now, they didn't call it a definition of done. Uh at the time, they ended up calling it that. But really what it was is it was 37 things that have to be in place and have to be done a certain way by a certain person uh, for work to get released to production. And a number of people, I, I'm not going to put this out there that I was the only one, but many people were saying, you realize this is you know, uh, unsustainable and that it's it's getting worse. And it was being added to all the time to the point where Leaders, uh, team members, individual areas were like, how can we operate in this increasingly complex environment where all you're doing, instead of helping us make things better, you're popping up more and more hurdles for us to jump over to get anything done. And it just it led to extreme apathy from almost everyone involved. Um, and I'm sure it's very much like like you were thinking of with with your example, but totally different industries. The primary advice I gave our audience member is, can you visualize this problem in a simple, clear way and show it to as many people that you can so that when you can show it to an influencer and say, this is the problem, do you have any assistance or this is what I need? Uh, 
you might find that occasionally you'll show it to somebody who can do something and can begin to help you make the environment better, maybe just for that team or maybe for a whole bunch of teams. And what I started with is when we think about workflow or visualizing the workflow, most scrum masters or Kanban facilitators might be looking at just their team. And if you zoom out, like if you imagine like one of those uh, sci-fi movies where you're looking at something small and it looks, it takes up your whole screen, but then you zoom way out and you realize it's a little tiny speck in the big thing. That's what I'm talking about. Like if you can visualize all 37 steps of that process and show somebody, well, hey, my team is responsible for three weeks here. But this is a nine-month process and show people that and where all those those wait times and cues and all these other things are, that could spark a really good conversation. Yeah, agreed. Uh, there are a couple of things there as well. It, it, understanding or seeing this bigger picture that there are like 37 steps and where you are in that little picture sometimes demotivates people as well. Like we're just so small, we can't change anything. Or you get toxified by the implement, uh, you you get dragged along with the toxified implementation of Scrum, for instance, uh, in the organization. And if you don't regularly check in, are we still doing the right things? Uh, then you get sucked into that wrongful implementation, right? I've also seen a lot of self-employed, and I don't mean to generalize, but I've seen way too many self-employed people by now that are finding it way too easy to be in that system and talk whatever they need to talk in order to remain in business in that organization because it's easy money and not actually changing a thing. And if it's a really large organization with a lot of those people, then change is incredibly cumbersome. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I did have one one I- example at this this company where we were in a big meeting and the conversation was going around one of these ideas. It was just talking about one of these big impediments to getting anything done in a reasonable amount of time. And a woman stood up and said, wait, tell me about that. And the person who was speaking answered her question. She goes, that's my department. That is not true. I can fix that. And everybody perked up. And we talked about it. And basically, one of those steps was not even a real step. And the way it was manifesting itself down at the team level was based on a a misconception. And she goes, I can fix this. And she did. And she did a great job of communicating, hey, here's how our words have been twisted. And we're not actually trying to impede progress for this. And we're not saying you have to do this. And not everything has to go through this this process, et cetera, et cetera. But the the beauty of it was some of her peers heard that too and were like, oh, well, let me talk about my part in this problem and how what we can do to make it better. And I think that that single interaction brought a lot of people to the table to be willing to think about how they were contributing maybe to an overall problem. Well, that's powerful because then you unite Right, and people understand their purpose and their impact um, on the entire solution, the entire potential solution. Yeah. That works. Yeah, but, you know, the thing is, we couldn't plan that. Like, that thing just happened 
accidentally, organically, and it's hard to force it, especially in a big company with hundreds of thousands of employees in this case, et cetera. Um, so it's how do you create that when you need it instead of just getting lucky and finding yourself in the right room. But, but you know, that's where preparation comes in. So if you have done this work to look at this entire problem, when you find yourself with that audience, you, you, you have it instead of saying, let me go put this together and I'll get back to you in two weeks. Uh, exactly. Because then you create more leeway or a longer time to fix instead of really jumping on this. Let's see what we can do to improve. Yeah. With, so, with the entire system. And, and that's, I think, uh, something that is missing in many organizations is that system thinking. How can we improve the system? How can we improve the process rather than just try to fix, lo uh, fix local issues? Absolutely. And, and that's kind of where, where my brain was, too, with this question is systems thinking and understanding what comes before this, what comes after How do all these things interrelate? What is this solution going to create? What is that solution going to create, et cetera? And then helping people stand around that or sit around it or whatever and look at it and say, oh, I, I see how I can affect this. Or I can now see why this thing that bothers me, why it's happening. It's happening because of this other seemingly disconnected thing that is actually extremely connected. Yeah, or people make impediments that aren't actually impediments. Yeah. Um, so I I said something recently to to an audience, uh, not not our audience, but just a group, and they the the most important thing they took away was, are you challenging what's a real constraint and what's what's not a real constraint? And I'm you know happy to repeat that all the time. And but if we had to sum up for our audience member, kind of your thoughts on this what is there anything actual you would tell him to do or to try in this scenario i think power is in the numbers in that sense it's to create an alliance of people throughout the entire chain of where you can start improving stuff it's not uh it's, it's very easy to try to convince uh the naysayers it's not easy to convince them but it's easy to focus on them put your energy in this i would rather put my energy in people that think uh yeah we're being hampered with this process as well let's see what we can do to optimize this that plus ask for forgiveness it, you can go if you have access to production just go and ask for forgiveness yeah. if you have a good business case and the results are there no one's going to stop you yeah yep both great tips. Um, my answer would be visualize this as simply and as clearly as possible and show it to as many people you can, especially influencers or people who are squeaky wheels are and complaining and say, I understand you're, you're tired of waiting seven months for this thing. Here is reality and show it to them and say, yeah. is there anything you can do about this? Or If nothing else, you're raising transparency and awareness around the situation. And we have to be careful, though, to just not kind of sub-optimize and say, well, let's just make this one little step go faster, but not doing anything to tackle the overall problem. Exactly. And I was just looking at the, um, the mural board, the Mastering Agility mural board, with uh, questions coming from the audience. And there's one specifically that kind of relates to this uh, where you could dive into, are there any metrics you always use or you usually start with? 
in this specific case, if you measure like cycle time or lead time or these kind of things, like these, this is the, the cycle time or lead time with the current process. And this would be the cycle time if we would just fix it. Like there's a big difference in here. Usually that's easy to calculate back into numbers and then into monetary numbers. If you bring that to a manager of this process or one of the managers within the wheel, he's I I, I highly doubt he's going to say, well, no, uh, we're just going to go with the expensive option anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cycle time is one of mine. Lead time, um, a lot of different time-based metrics is going to be where I would advise this person to start with is – because your biggest problem is is time, it sounds like. Um, so let's start to capture capture those things. And, and we might not even have to start to capture them. We might just need to bring them together into one simple visual and and, and look at them, and then say, what would it take to to affect this affect this metric in, in a positive way? Um, the other kind of metric I would look at is maybe more of a subjective one, but it's how are the people that care feeling about this process? So if you can come at something from like, this is how people are feeling and this is what it's leading to. This is the complaints. This is customer satisfaction. This is, uh, you know, the effect on our, on our company strategy goals or whatever. And I've done some hard work for us as a group. Here are the time-based problems of this workflow. Well, that, that might be, extremely uh, an extremely helpful one-two punch of metrics in this case exactly yeah agreed are there any other typical metrics that you use like random ones in any given organization not specifically tied to to this scenario yeah i mean i've i've been asked this question quite a bit recently actually and the metrics that i always start with um well okay let me not say always but i would say 95 percent of the time Cycle time, lead, yeah. Cycle time, lead time, uh, work item aging, or just aging as an idea. Like, how long are things sitting and waiting? Um, and throughput is is a pretty obvious one that that comes along with that. It, it almost seems obvious that if you're measuring those other things, you're also measuring throughput. But I'll just call it out, which is simply put. It's a count of the things we're 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 getting done or getting through our process at any given time, and those are the ones I always start with those those pretty standard flow based metrics. Some other things that I have recently in the last year, let's say, started measuring fairly often is psychological safety. So I've got a survey. I've been sending this out. We've established a baseline, and we're rerunning it every uh, ninety days to look at. How are our activities affecting the people and the dynamics on the team? And that's something I'm having very, very good luck with. And one of the other things that I would say, again, almost always run is experiments or continuous improvement items discovered versus actioned. And it's it's a simple ratio or percentage. And it requires a little bit of work to get there because many teams that I'm working with or clients that I'm coming into don't have any way of capturing those things. So we start by figuring out how do we capture those things? And then we have to call something resolved or actioned or addressed or experiment ran, hypothesis, you know, evaluated, et cetera. But that's always a helpful number. 
Agreed. It's, it's tricky to start with that because people overcomplicate these things or can overcomplicate these kinds yeah. of things. My, my main one is employee satisfaction or people happiness. I'm, I'm a true believer if people are happy, if they're comfortable in the organization that they are in and they feel like they can speak up, coming back to your psychological safety, I'm a true believer that quality will follow and then everything drizzles down and you can start measuring from that point on. And why? Because I'm currently at the receiving end or uh, the company I work, currently work for is so different in that sense than every other consultancy that I've worked prior to this one where the first principle that they have is people first. And what they do is they make sure that you are in your good space, right? That you're happy, that you're able to do your job as best as you can, and you feel good within the organization. And then the results will come. Previously, my other companies that I worked for, it was the other way around. Like Everything was revolving around numbers, and your happiness would maybe be tertiary at best. What are you using to track that happiness? Do you have any techniques? I always start off with very easy. Do you know these? If you go to the uh, to the airport to the airport bathrooms, there is this. There are these little machines: green smiley, neutral smiley, red mm-hmm. smiley. Easiest thing. Mm-hmm. Don't overcomplicate stuff. Just you can put this one of these sheets. Just draw them out on a piece of paper, put them next to a wall or a mural or whatever. Just put a line or a dot or whatever in the zone that you're currently at and be completely honest, be ruthlessly honest about mm-hmm. this. Because then we know whether we should be improving something or not. And if there's a trend line that you see, if if we have like 13 people are happy now, uh, but in the coming four sprints we see that like decreasing over time, then maybe there's a trend that we need to fix the other way around as well. If you have negative people currently and you feel like we got to improve over time and you see that improving, then you know you're on the right track. Yep. Yeah, there's a technique I've used called a, a Nico Nico, N-I-K-O, N-I-K-O. Uh, it comes from Management 3.0. It's you know got, got some other history, but it's kind of what you're describing. It's a really simple way to do it either physically or digitally with that airport button type experience. And becoming consistent about it and, and doing it maybe at the same time and place so that you can have a slightly more structured uh, way of capturing that feedback could be helpful. So it's just one way of doing it. There's many, many ways to do it. I've done that on Mural, and we might make it as a part of every every Tuesday's daily huddle or whatever, or at the beginning of every certain sessions so that it just becomes a cadence of the team and doing that check-in or you could do it daily. You could do it daily for a few sprints, weeks, months, and and just look at your trends and have conversations. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the power is, right? The power is not in, uh, in metrics themselves. The power is in what you learn from them and how you decide to yeah. use them. So let me let me expound on this because now, now I'm going to put you on the spot with a question I got asked, which is, so around this, are there metrics you always start with? If you had to choose one or two um, metrics to talk about a transformation effort of agility, which again, a lot built into that word and phrase, 
Are there any answers you would have there? Like, what could we look at to know that this initiative is is having a, an impact? I would look at customer or user satisfaction in that sense, because obviously we're delivering something for your users. Um, and in most cases, to be honest, that means that people got to start talking to users because I see too many organizations that keep development teams and users disconnected and disengaged. But if you have that baseline, if you know where your customers currently are, you start developing something uh, or stakeholder happiness. And you start developing something at a out of a, from a one to 10 scale, 10 being the best, our stakeholders are currently at a three and we're now starting to employ Scrum. And in five months from now, it has raised from a three to a five or a three to a six. You know, you're on the right track or revenue goes up. That could be a result, right? Or you just uh, retain uh, customers if you're in a decline before you get more customers. Those are the factors that I would have a, have a proper look at. Usually I hear... Um, if, if, if these, if I would ask this question during PSM or PSPO, usually I hear, uh, yeah, that we're saving money and we do, we're delivering faster. There could be a result but that should not be leading, uh, leading right. metric. We could deliver a lot of stuff a lot faster, not necessarily adding value. Wow, it's funny you say that because my, when I was going back and forth with this this person on LinkedIn around the question. I told him a story of that bank I was at. Uh, I, I looked at this team's metrics and they were all green. They were all positive looking metrics at a glance. But leadership said, I need you to, to dig in and find out what the hell's going on because we're not getting anything. People are not happy. Their satisfaction is is lowering over time. And they had just gotten really good and fast at, at delivering small little chunks of things. But on the surface level, everything that the company was tracking looked great. But when you dug in, they were just, like I said, getting getting faster at delivering the wrong work or little tiny pieces of work that have no value. Yeah. Uh, that brings you to the product management vacuum, right? How often do you see a disconnection between understanding the company vision and how the prodigal or product vision are related to this together with sprint goals. Like the connection between them, in my experience, often misses. Yeah, and that's the the tough thing around product ownership and and what is it we're actually doing and when do we get value and all that is projects are the typical vehicle and, and group of work that people talk about. And you and I might think that shifting to a product mindset and looking at products is easy and obvious, but it's not for a lot of people. And is there, what would you say to that? Like somebody who said, well, we don't even know what our product is. We have a list of projects. Can you help us with our agility in that? Like, does your approach change there? Or have you had that, that question come to you? Yeah, uh, quite frequently, unfortunately. it's It always feels to me as a football team, and I mean the actual football and not mm-hmm. American football, team trying to score at six different goals at once. Mm. Playing with one ball. That's not going to happen. That's not going to work. And if you visualize this, like, yeah, that's dumb. 
that's the exact same thing that you're trying to do within the organization. So what can you do? Uh, bring it back to one goal. Bingo. Then create, just focus on one product first. Satisfy that list. Satisfy the needs, or the, the goals over there first, and then pick up something else. But create that focus. They're coming back to Scrum values. Create that focus. It's really hard to get stuff actually done if you're continuously working on everything at once. Yeah. Yeah. And to add to that, I would say it's not that projects aren't a thing. It's that we have to understand that by definition, projects are temporary and products are long lived. And when we have a project mindset, it typically leads us to do certain things because of that temporary short-term nature. It tends to, to, I, I think the nature of projects is what creates the focus on getting done instead of delivering value. It tends to create the contractual fixed fee, fixed scope, fixed deadline, all that stuff. And then it also, that has a effect of leading to the metrics we use to measure projects being very uh, activity and output focused and done focused instead of quality and value focused. And this is another example of systems thinking where somebody gives you a, a seemingly simple question like, why should we go to projects versus products uh, in our mindset for agility? And then you, you you could just answer that question. But if you say, well, let's think about how those two things are different and what each of them lead to. And then you step back and forward. That is powerful, I think. And that is a tool that I would love to put in everybody's toolkit. But a lot of agile coaches don't have that 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 tool and they need it. They need to be able to understand how to facilitate conversations, visualize simply and step back from problems and look at the entire um, environment, look at the problem, the, the possible solutions, what's contributing to it, what is coming from it, et cetera. But that's the thing. Everyone and their mom can be an agile coach these days. There is no actual qualification that you need. You can call yourself an Agile coach if you have read the book by Lisa Atkins. Hell, you don't even need that. You can be an Agile coach if you want to. If you come into an organization, you know how to talk with a manager, you know how to get yourself in, and ta-da, you're, you're in the organization. and you're, You don't actually know how to change jack shit. Yeah. And that's how the market gets, uh, uh, gets messed up. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Unfortunately, that's day-to-day -day reality. Yeah, it, it is it is toxic and it's terrible. It's to the point where I was just thinking yesterday, I don't I don't want to call myself an agile coach anymore. Like I, I am going to probably go through my social media presence and try and remove that that phrase from everything because I just had a couple experiences in the last week that just frankly they just pissed me off. Um one of them I'd love to get your thoughts on is somebody that I've been just very lightly advising or mentoring over the last six months. And I say very lightly, like I, I've went months and not even had so much as a question from this person. Um, they said, Hey, can you review my new resume? I'm struggling to get a job and would love your thoughts. And I said, sure. So we, we jumped on a zoom and uh, the last time I talked to this person, they were trying to get a scrum master job, which I thought was reasonable knowing their background, their experience, their education around this and what they'd done. They, uh, back then had taken a, a PSM class and uh, 
done some of the right things in personal development and all this. And I thought, yeah, you, you're going to have a hard time, but you can make that pivot based on your other corporate experience, et cetera. Well, their new resume says an agile coach with 20 years experience. And I'm like, whoa. And they said, yeah, I got some feedback from other people that I shouldn't use that term agile coach, but I think I should. Now, I know that what they're doing is they're saying, well, my professional experience is 20 years and I can now see agility everywhere I look. So I'm a, an agile coach with 20 years experience and I have a two day PSM. I really don't know shit about shit. I've never done anything. Haven't been through a single sprint review, a single retrospective. I haven't released a single damn product to the market. And they're applying for jobs, competing with people who have done all those things. And I, I just, I'm like, I, I can't, I can't help here. And, and I'm not going to help. And I advise them to not use that term and that phrase and to be very honest about where they were in their journey. And that was one example from last week. I had two other ones that were not the same, but related. Have you seen this? Like, how do you react when you you see this type of thing? Um, that's a good question. I think it makes sense, and why? Because so many companies, if you look through Indeed or LinkedIn Jobs or whatsoever, the expectations that companies have when putting out a vacancy are usually so unreal that you get unrealistic resumes as well as a, as a, uh, as a consequence. Employees cannot be older than 18 years and they need to have 40 years of experience. Well, duh, that's where you get your stupid resumes from. So it makes sense. I, I would advise people to always be honest, but I also know that the market's not always going to pick up. So if I boil that down, it's everyone involved needs to stop lying. Yes, that would be my general life's advice anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really good advice. So there you go, audience. If if you need a, um, a short and pithy tweet summary of, of my feelings on this, stop lying. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about transparency, expect and adapt, how can you be transparent if you're – if you start off the entire endeavor with lies in either a resume or a job description. Yeah. Well, and if we, if we come back to what we've been talking about, a systems thinking approach, let's, so let's think about why do people lie? Well, they're frustrated, they're anxious, they're afraid. Um, they don't know any other way or they think that it's, you know, that's the way it's always been done. So I always love to think about whenever I see something that bothers me, Think, why are they doing that? Why are they saying that? Why are they not saying that? Why are they why are they knowingly lying? And then think about the why. And then maybe I can look at how I can help. So this person really wanted to get a job in a new industry. They were frustrated that they were underpaid and underutilized and all this. So that's great to have that want. What I advised uh, this person and other people in the past is, Lean in on your positives there. Lean in on your passion, on your desire, on your hunger to do something different. But don't start a relationship by lying about what you can already do. Be more humble about what you can't do and play up your strengths. Yeah. To be honest, I used to be like that where I would talk myself into a position, right? Where I 
would say the shit I needed to say in order to get a job uh, when I was working my first consultancy job. Mm-hmm. And I landed gigs that I was completely unhappy working in. And now it's like, all right, let's 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 talk to this person. And it's indeed that. It's a relationship. So I should fit the company, but the company should equally fit me. Mm-hmm. And if they're like, ah, oh, you would be the perfect fit. And I'm like, nah, I don't think so. I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do appreciate the fact that I that is a sort of a luxury position because I know not everyone can afford that. Uh, so th- th- this may come across a little bit arrogant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm aware of that. I, I don't think that's arrogant. So I, I, um, don't beat yourself up on that. Like we've all been there. I, I in the past have, and, and I'm still a big proponent of the phrase "fake it till you make it." But I'm not saying fake, fake your whole sense of self and capabilities. I'm saying uh, I've looked at a job description recently where uh, I doubt anybody could do every single thing to the level that the company is looking for. But it, it, there are there's these weird dynamics in people where. You have, let's call them Camp A. They'll look at that list of 10 things in a job posting and say, I can do eight of those 10 things. So because of the two I can't do, I'm not going to apply. And you have another group of people that says, I can do three of those 10 things. So I can, I'm going to apply. And I think both of those are, I don't know, they are what they are. But I'm looking at, am I able to do enough? Am I, do I have enough experience to be successful in this, to be honest about what I can and can't do, et cetera, to have the conversation and to try and uh, fake it till I make it on some of these other things? As long as that faking isn't going to hurt people and isn't going to start off what could be a very long relationship based on a foundation of lies. Um, and it depends as well what you're faking. Because I heard this TED Talk where this – a woman was saying, fake it till you become it. And I think that was an interesting perspective. Mm. Yeah. And it, yeah, I think it comes back to what are you faking for how long and how impactful is it? But um, yeah, no key takeaway there except to say, um, you know, I'm not going to try and fake being a pilot because I'd be faking 100% of that <laughs> skill. But if, if, if you say, hey, I would like you to come work in this environment, these are the skills we need, and I look at the list of eight or 10 things you need, I'm like, you know, I have most of those, but I've never worked in the aerospace industry, and I have never used this particular tool or this particular technique or et cetera. Hell yeah, I'm going to apply. And if somebody says, Jim, have you done this? I'm going to say, no, I haven't worked in the aerospace industry, but I've worked heavily in with big automotive manufacturers and I've worked in other tangible good manufacturing and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Or if they say, have you ever used Figma? I'm going to say, uh, no, well, actually I have, but I'm going to say no, but I've used this, this, and this, which are extremely similar and they do the same thing. And I feel that the learning gap between those skills and this thing you need are extremely reasonable and I've done some research and some practice and here's what I can now come to the table saying I'm capable of. That's fine. But to go apply for a job of leading an organizational transformation effort for uh, 18,000 people when you've had a two-day class? No, that's not what I mean by fake it till you make it. That is just going to set you and everyone else that you affect up for a shit show. And I don't want that for anybody. Yep, that happens so often. 
Yeah. Um, and you know, that's the, that's the problem is a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Um, here in Ohio, you can go take a, I think it's now down to like a one day class and get your concealed carry license where you can carry a weapon into many, many places hidden and all that. And they're saying, well, in this four hour, eight hour, one day, two day class, you now know enough. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I get it. That's the law. Um, but it's, it's like, uh, is that just enough knowledge to make you not hurt yourself and others? Maybe like, that's kind of what a driver's license is. I don't think anybody's going to say at 16 years old, I was a great driver. They're going to say, you know, no. and have practiced enough to not kill other people and not harm and, and hurt yourself. Hopefully. In that specific case, I would like to turn that around as well. Like maybe you know enough theoretically in that two-day-ish class, but maybe we should know a little bit more about you before giving you a gun. Absolutely. Um, and I think, like you said, is it, you know enough theoretically, but you haven't experienced everything. So when I was teaching my daughter to drive, she was 15, had her learner's permit, and we were out in the car, and she wanted to drive from this place to this place. And I said, okay. And it was kind of lightly raining. And we were in a in a very safe area. There was no traffic around, no 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 major things. And I said, "All right, get you know when we get up to speed, about forty five fifty miles an hour, I want you to hit the brakes as hard as possible." And she looked at me with abject fear in her face. She goes, "Why? What, what's going to happen? What, what? What? No, I don't want to do that." And we're driving down the road while we're having this conversation. I said, "Look." You are going to have to slam the brakes on when it is raining, and I want you to know what that feels like now in a safe place so that we can talk about it. She goes, I, I don't know, I don't know. And like she started to get very, very upset. I'm like, trust me, it's going to be fine. So we got in this big open space with lots of pavement on both sides, but it was raining. She got up to about 50 miles an hour and hit the brakes. Now, she hit the brakes about 30% of what I would have done. And she's like, okay, is that? And I'm like, no, 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 we're going to do that again. Not nearly fast enough. I need to replicate a real world scenario. So anyway, we did this. She skidded a little bit and she developed some confidence. She goes, oh, like, okay, what, what, what should I do here? And this is what I felt. So this is as coaches, consultants, advisors, this is what we're doing. We're trying to make it safe for people to experiment, safe for people to fail. And so that when they do experience something really difficult it's not the first time and we're trying to help people move from theoretical to tactical and applicable yeah also coming back to the i don't i'm not necessarily against people having guns not by far i'm against the wrong people having guns well but what are the wrong people sander sander like right yeah let's have a yes let's do that uh <laughs> uh, speaking of two-day classes and i think that would be a very nice conclusion of today's episode jim and i are teaching a two-day class scrum class in ohio in the first week of october monday and tuesday which will be open to enrollment soon it's open enrollment class this is going to be our first ever class together uh i'm i'm looking forward to coming back to ohio after 12 years uh I think it's going to be well. Awesome. When you cross the border, we'll give you your gun and you can stick it in your pocket, and we'll make sure you're one of the right people. Uh, but no, like I can't wait. It's going to be it's going to be fun. We're going to be teaching a product owner class. 
Um, I haven't done a public in-person class in a couple years, so this is going to be a blast. I've done some private ones, but yeah, I'm, I am looking forward to hosting you. Can't wait to, to have a bunch of chats over, over beers and learn some stuff together. It's going to be a great time. Yeah, it's going to be uh, PSPOA, so uh, Advanced Product Owner Class. Uh, I'm looking forward to having beers too. Why? Because I quit drinking for a little bit now because I noticed I was drinking too regularly. Uh, so I figured out, well, maybe put more emphasis on my physical health and stop drinking for a while. So I'm pretty sure if I'm going to pick up a new beer or another beer in a while, it's going to hit me. Nice. I can't wait to see that. that. Everybody, that's going to be fun. I will make sure I report back on an episode after that. What? drunk uh mastering agility sounds like um is there a u.s beer that you're really looking forward to that maybe you can't get and when you get over here you're like you know that's something i i've always wanted to try or something you remember from a previous trip uh not specifically usually i just take the 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 card of beers and i just have random ones i've never had before i just don't remember the name yeah okay cool yeah, let's wrap it up. But um, thank you for everybody who's in the audience, in the chat, and the questions we got. And as always, um, to my dear host, I hope you have a great weekend. I hope your dog stops eating your home. I hope so for him as well. <laughs> good. Good. Enjoy your weekend, man. It was good chatting. All right. Have a good one, everyone. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast.